Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. With Never Break the Chain, we've got Blake Saunders, who is in this band Empire, and Tim Green is hired to write the authorized biography of that band. So Tim is going to go to Los Angeles to interview the band and get this book together. If you are a fan of L.A. and the music scene, you're going to love this book. What do you see as the source of the conflict between Blake and Mal? They have different visions for what the band should be and could be. And Prague is at the heart of that. Progressive rock. Prog rock. Prague. Prague. Welcome back to an era when elves were elves. Could you come up with a basic definition or just some characteristics of prog rock? My rule of thumb is if you hear the Mellotron or the Moog, <laughs> you're in the right place. It's not just about the music, I feel like. It's also about art and your sensibilities. This is Janet Fitch. This is Jeff Jackson. This is Dana Spiota. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Lance Olson. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Rock is Lit! Season 3! Hey there, Lit listeners. Welcome to Season 3 of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, and also a recent finalist in the PopCon Indie Podcast Contest in the category of Art and Culture Podcast. Rock is Lit is written, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Special shout out to this season's intern, Hannah Stewart. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. Drop me a line at ChristyAlexanderHallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for your support. In this episode of Rock is Lit, we'll explore the intricate layers of Jason Warburg's novel Never Break the Chain. Protagonist Tim Green's quest through the vibrant L.A. rock scene, unraveling the history of the fictional band Empire, reveals a tale of family ties and self-discovery. In the last segment of the episode, 
My rock and roll brothers, Mac B and Action Jackson from the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, join me to dissect the novel's prog rock influences, adding a dynamic twist to the discussion. But first, I'd like to welcome Jason Warburg to the podcast. The son of a writer and an architect, Jason Warburg was building worlds in his imagination before he learned to ride a bike. Obsessed with music in his teens and politics in his 20s, he would eventually write both fiction and nonfiction exploring these realms, culminating in his 2011 debut novel, Believe in Me, in which young political operative Tim Green trips and falls headlong into the orbit of a globe-trotting rock and roll band. Next came My Heart Sings the Harmony, a nonfiction collection of writing about music, followed by Never Break the Chain, a sequel to Believe in Me. His most recent book is The Remembering, Reflections on Love, Art, Faith, Heroes, Grief, and Baseball, an essay collection that doubles as a memoir of sorts. Jason is currently working on a third novel featuring his protagonist, Tim Green. He is also the longtime editor of music review site The Daily Vault. Thanks for joining me, Jason. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. So the last time we talked, we focused on your first novel, Believe in Me, which is a prequel to Never Break the Chain. Since that first novel begins the story of your main character, Tim Green, can you give listeners a brief overview of that book and talk about how it dovetails with Never Break the Chain? Sure. Believe in Me begins with the protagonist, Tim Green, grieving his father, and and not really totally aware of how much the grief is affecting him. But he's in a situation where he's working for a political figure who he really doesn't enjoy working for, but he feels like this is the best use of his professional talents at the time. And his father was a music journalist named Bernie Green. And he, in the process of having kind of a confrontation with his boss, runs into a major rock figure, Jordan Lee, who's the front man of a huge band, a a U2 scale band. And he kind of falls into that universe of rock and roll that his father was an observer of and a chronicler of. And in the process, that sort of helps him work through some of his issues, some of his grief related to his relationship with his father at the same time that he's having this kind of amazing adventure of getting swept up in the the comet tail of this huge rock and roll band that's doing a, a big reunion tour and playing arenas and stadiums across the country. And he ends up as the political advisor to Jordan Lee, the, the band's front man, because Jordan does a lot of charity work and he's very involved in environmental causes in particular. So that's kind of his entree into that world. And that's the beginning of the trajectory of the adventure that happens in Believe in Me. There was one piece of the story that I told in Believe in Me that I instinctively, reflexively shoved off to one side in the process of telling that story. Because I knew that if I 
went in that direction, it could hijack the entire story. Are you talking about the mother? I am. The question, there's a scene fairly early in Believe in Me where Tim reveals that he came to live with his father, who was the only parent he ever knew, his his single dad, because his mother showed up at his father's doorstep with a baby in her arms, and his dad had not seen or heard from her in many months. They had had a one-night stand, and all of a sudden, this woman shows up at his door with a baby in her arms and says, it's yours. I can't handle this. I'm not equipped to be a parent here. Surprise. I didn't address that any further in Believe in Me because I knew that if I went down that path, that would be a whole nother story. And it wasn't the story I was looking to tell in that first book. So I left it there. It just became part of Tim's backstory that he didn't really know anything about his mother. And then when I finished Believe in Me and it was published, I missed the characters. And I started thinking about what would maybe happen next in Tim's life. And as I started to think about that, the situation with Tim's mother was just obvious in terms of its potential for really compelling storytelling and and delving into some really fairly heavy psychological stuff. When did things begin to gel and you realize that you did have a story that could be another book? I've always been a big fan of mysteries and thrillers. That's a genre that I like to read a lot for my own recreational reading. And I recognize that the direction that the plotting was taking was giving me an opportunity to kind of play in that sandbox a little bit. Yep. So what I came up with was that his mother was a huge rock fan who went to tons of shows, and that was kind of the center of her life. And indeed, she and Bernie had met at a concert at on New Year's Eve at the Oakland Coliseum. As I started going down that path with Tim's mother of where she would go and what she would do, I almost reverse engineered it because I started imagining where she would be today and then what the path would be that led her there. And then I started sort of figuring out what sort of clues there might be that Tim might come across. And another piece of it, which was coming together in my mind at the same time, was that in Believe in Me, you get a look inside the workings of a very, very successful rock band, kind of at the height of their powers and their popularity and their uh, financial viability. I wanted to look at a different kind of band. I wanted to, to look at a story that we've seen a lot of times in the last 20 years or so, which is of a band that was very popular in the old era of the music industry, where album sales was the primary driver of of a musician's income. And I wanted to see what that looked like when you, you get farther down the line with a band that had a couple of hits, but has had, you know, declining sales and, and declining income. And uh, what that does when there's a certain kind of personality at the center, the driving force of that band, which in this case is a, a guitar player named Blake Saunders, who's very determined, very ambitious, very controlling. And he's faced with a situation where his band is on a downhill slide and he lives in this 
wonderful palatial home in Malibu that he bought with the earnings he had in the in the early successful time of the band and he may be in danger of losing everything he had because of the direction the music industry has taken and the direction the band has taken. Tim Green is hired to write the authorized biography of that band. So Tim is going to go to Los Angeles to interview the band and get this book together. The big question in the book is what is family? I want to talk about how he uses that trip to Los Angeles to look for his mother. But before we get to that, I just want to say, you begin the short prologue to the novel with this question that sets that what is family idea in motion. And here's the first line of the prologue. What is it about blood that compels us? That introduces that central question. And for a lot of folks, as you know, family is very complicated. And you acknowledge this also in the prologue. You compare family to a mirror and a tribe and refer to it as a blessing and a curse. And then you end the prologue with this. Connection is sustenance for the soul, and blood is the one connection you can never deny, which relates to the title of the novel, Never Break the Chain, the chain being the idea of family. Now, did you have the Fleetwood Mac song, The Chain, in mind when you came up with the title of the book, or did that come to you later? I have a difficult relationship with titles. (laughs) Uh, I always struggle with them. I struggled hugely with Believe in Me. I think I went through eight or nine titles before I got there. With Never Break the Chain, I went through a similar process in the sense that I listened to a lot of music and looked at a lot of lyric sheets looking for songs that would resonate with the kinds of things that I was talking about in the story. When I got to those lines, that are quoted in the book from the chain. As soon as I read those, I knew that that was the essence of the book. Run in the shadows, damn your love, damn your lies. And if you don't love me now, you will never love me again. I can still hear you saying you would never break the chain. I mean, run in the shadows is exactly what Tim's mother is doing in those years between when she met his father and when he connects with her again. This is Jason Warburg, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store 
or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Let's talk more about Tim and the situation with his absentee mother. He seems like he copes with that well and believe in me, and that it's not something that preoccupies a lot of his time. With Never Break the Chain, very early on, that shifts, and he decides that he needs to find out more about her. So if you don't mind, would you read aloud the part that deals with this, which begins on page 12? I'd be glad to. The main piece of action that happens prior to this scene is just that Tim gets a phone call from the manager for the band that Blake Saunders is the leader of, asking him to take on the job of writing a biography of the band. And in order to do that, he needs to go down to Los Angeles and basically live down there for a a month or so uh, while he's working on the book. So here is that section starting on page 12. And as always, it's Tim uh, narrating. You're you're hearing his thoughts. Before we get any farther, though, the truth. It had been more than just the money that put me on the road south to L.A. the morning after Reg Pill's call. 
It had been a year and a half since my father had died, felled at 55 like the giant oak he was, by diabetes and heart disease. Over the course of that time, I had switched jobs, moved house, and started a new relationship. The trifecta of life stressors, if you believe the experts. Yet for me, each of these changes had been accompanied by a huge sense of relief, at least in the moment. Finally, after months of what my dad, a veteran of writer's block, used to call stuckness, I felt like I'd achieved some kind of forward motion, momentum, direction. After the moment, when real life started up again, was another matter. Terry and I were closer than ever, but as Jordan Lee himself had told me the year before, you want to believe that love will change everything, that it will fix everything in you that's broken. It doesn't. It just sometimes helps you find answers that you couldn't get to on your own. I had managed to let Terry in, and once we'd gotten past the awkward preliminaries, it had been amazing for a time. We were already in tune as only the best of friends could be. Adding new layers of intimacy and commitment to that sometimes felt absurdly wonderful, like we'd stepped into the final scene of one of those early 90s Meg Ryan rom-coms. As the weeks and months went by, though, I started to feel something else as well. Not a pang, more like a quiet voice filtering up from the recesses of my brain, a voice I'd heard before but thought had been silenced. It was the voice that held the four months I'd spent on the road with Jordan and his band Storm's Eye as a sort of nirvana, a time when, outside of the basic obligations of my job, I had enjoyed almost perfect freedom to do as I pleased. In one of the 50 or so airports I'd navigated that summer and fall, I'd picked up a paperback in Lee Child's Jack Reacher series. In it, Child describes the hobo demon that lives in Reacher's head and drives him to drift endlessly from town to town, every connection in his life a fleeting distraction from his essential addictive autonomy. I like being alone, he says at some point in several of those books, explaining himself to some regular person caught up in the net of responsibilities and obligations that make up a regular life. I had no designs on the life of a drifter, but I nonetheless felt myself growing vigilant against the creeping forces that were beginning to draw me to them like a salmon taking that final swim upstream. In my more anxious moments, it all loomed right in front of me, clear as day. The life, the wife, the kids, the mortgage, the sensible eight-to-five job that will eventually rob me of my soul. And I was not ready to surrender to it. As far as the answers that Jordan had suggested love might help me find, some of them were there. But with the answers came more questions. No, that's not exactly it. What the answers I found being with Terry did in the end was to highlight in shades of neon the two questions that remained. The first was the obvious one. How was I going to earn a living? I'd burned the bridges of my political career right to the foundations, and there might be five jobs in the world like the one I'd just had working for Jordan Lee, essentially political advisor to a rock star. The second question should have been just as obvious in retrospect. But it wasn't. I guess when you've gotten as good at ignoring the elephant in the room as I had, turning away from it becomes like breathing, a reflex you're hardly aware is even happening. 
My father had told me the story four or five times over the years when I'd asked. The essential elements were always the same. He'd been assigned to cover a New Year's Eve show headlined by Bob Seger. As he took notes from the third row, a figure caught his eye dancing in the aisle, a dirty blonde, sun-dressed wood nymph of a girl, swaying and spinning in a world all her own, a scarf trailing around her like an eel circling coral. By the end of the main set, he was in the aisle dancing awkwardly alongside her. By the third encore, they were lost in their own world, entwined and oblivious as the crowd danced all around them. The next morning, she had slipped away, not to return for 11 months, until the day she rang his doorbell and tried to hand me, two-month-old, swaddled and talcum-powdered me, over to him. When she had come back two days later, Dad had taken me in, and life as I had known it ever since had begun. It was the moment I grew up, I heard him say one night over a bottle of wine with a friend from work, when he thought I was tucked away safely in my bedroom upstairs for the night. Instead, I was playing spy, an eight-year-old James Bond lying flat on the wood floor listening down the stairs, trying to divine the rhythms and meanings of the adult conversations echoing up to me. One minute the only responsibility I had was making rent every month, he said. The next, I had another person's entire life in my hands. Before I overheard this, I had a vague sense at times that I might be a burden, but he said the words with such clear pride, as if it had been the most consequential moment of his life. What could it have been like, at 27, to have a girl he dimly remembered from a single night almost a year before show up at his door with his two-month-old son? What thoughts would have run through his head? This can't be real. My life is over. But I knew him, and grew up with him, and fought with him, and nursed him, and most recently mourned him, and felt I had at least an inkling of how that particular scene must have played out from his perspective. My mother's state of mind remained, as it had been for my entire life, a missing piece, a blank canvas. Was she desperate, regretful, self-pitying? What drove her to first keep her pregnancy a secret from my father, and then discard me like a worn-out piece of luggage, never looking back? Dad's comments about her over the years had been spare and careful, mostly to the effect that she had done what she thought was best for me. Apparently that included disappearing from my life forever, distant as a rumor of thunder from a faraway storm. I had never seen my mother again, could not, in fact, remember ever seeing her at all. I had wondered about her from time to time, of course, in that sort of abstract, detached way kids think about things that are confusing to them. The other kids have moms. Why don't I? But I didn't. I had a father who did and was everything, both mom and dad, nurturer and discipliner, breadwinner and band-aid applier. I knew nothing else, never had and never would. And so, however unusual my situation might be, it became my normal. Some kids had two parents. I just had my dad. For 28 years, that was that. Until I found the picture. My father's office was a macrocosm of the ancient roll-top desk that dominated it. A rabbit worn full of nooks and cubbies, folders and boxes. 
Most contain the detritus of 30 years as a professional music writer. Interview notes, clippings, microcassettes, guitar picks, CD booklets, offering up the musty captured scent of unfiltered camels from a backstage interview 30 years in the past. In the back corner of the closet in the sunny downstairs bedroom he had converted into his office was a box of personal papers, bank statements, insurance bills, paycheck stubs, and wadded folders of old holiday cards and correspondence. One summer day, a couple of weeks before Reg Pill and Blake Saunders entered my life, as I hit the three-quarters mark of clearing through the box, I found a dog-eared envelope, unsealed and with no label. Inside was a single faded and slightly yellowed black-and-white photo, a copy of an image that had long since burned itself into my memory. The picture is full of movement in the background and at the edges. Arms and hair and other blurry shapes gyrating to unheard music as the camera's eye looks down a row of fans on the arena floor. At the center of the image, framed in the gap between the row the photographer is standing in and the next one forward, a lithe figure is frozen, arms over her head, in three-quarter profile facing diagonally toward the unseen stage to the right of the camera. Her eyes and mouth are open, and she wears an expression of almost delirious joy. High on her chest hangs a pendant on a leather thong necklace, some vaguely Celtic symbol, a tripetaled blossom whose lines keep looping back on themselves. Its slightly mottled texture suggests a sort of coppery pewter, though it's hard to tell in the picture. I stared at the photo for a long time, taking in every detail the camera had captured, every fold of her dress, every freckle on her arm, every tiny imperfection on her face, again, as if for the first time. The image was as familiar to me as the cool shade of the oak tree in our backyard, or the silken warmth of Terry's hand in mine. I hadn't looked at my copy of it in years but seeing it again still hit me with the force of a roundhouse punch to the sternum. It was a picture of my mother, a freeze frame of a split second before my father stood up and joined her, dancing in the aisle as Bob Seger sang the final driving chorus of his set closer, Night Moves. The image, I realized all over again, captured the precise instant to which I owed my very existence. My breathing slowed, and I began to feel the blood pulsing in my neck, my hands, my feet. It felt as if the gears of the universe had ground to a halt. A copy of the same picture was tucked away in my own things upstairs. My father had given it to me on my 13th birthday. I had wondered a few times at the tortured logic behind that decision, that timing, but never got up the nerve to ask. It seemed every other subject in the world was open for discussion, but not that one. For whatever reason, it had never occurred to me that he might have kept a copy for himself, and I didn't know what to make of this. Was it simple nostalgic impulse? The mother of my child and all that? Or was it possible there was more of a connection between them than he had ever let on? I stared at the image for so long that my hand began to ache. Eventually, time started again. I took a slow, deep breath and turned the photo over. I was hoping against hope for some sort of clue on the back, but there was nothing, 
Just a fossilized fleck of dried something. Glazed donut frosting? No mark or sign of when or why he had squirreled away a copy of this indelible image for himself. And no obvious next step down the path that had already begun to pull me forward with the implacable force of gravity itself. Find her. I love how you use that photo of his mother as the catalyst for getting ready to go off and find out more about her. And it, it also impressed me that he had never actually seen or had in his hands his own birth certificate. So this part of his life is definitely a mystery. Talking about the band Empire that Tim is working with now, tell me a little bit about that band. They started out as a prog band, and they're British, and then they wound up switching to a different sound, more of a commercial sound. Give me a little background on that band. Yes was kind of a stepping off point for me imagining the band Empire. And I was specifically thinking about the evolution that they took in the early 80s when they had broken up for a while and then connected with Trevor Rabin, a singer-songwriter guitarist from South Africa, who had a very different musical style from their previous guitar player, Steve Howe. And initially, they weren't going to be Yes, they were going to be an entirely new band, even though I think three of the four of them had previously been part of Yes. And then John Anderson, the former lead singer of Yes, came in and it became the new Yes. But their sound was more commercial, more album-oriented rock in style. Are you talking about the era of Leave It? Exactly, of Owner of a Lonely Heart and Leave It. Yeah. It was a very successful era for the band. Some of us didn't think it was as musically satisfying, <laughs> but that's that's a whole religious argument that you can get into with any Yes fan. I got it. Be that as it may, I sort of, I thought about that evolution and that became sort of a natural thing for me to explore with the career arc that I had in mind for Empire. It was maybe a little bit awkward because of the timing, how the timeline had to work out where they were undergoing that shift in the 90s rather than the 80s. But the way that music tends to be cyclical, I thought it worked reasonably well. And certainly there are plenty of examples of bands that sort of struggle to find their sound and then find something that clicks with a wider audience and that becomes their sound going forward. Yeah. Just as a Interesting to me and maybe a few other progressive rock fans as a footnote, which I mentioned in the acknowledgments, I came up with the band name Empire because I felt like it reflected the sort of controlling, almost dictatorial stance of the leader of the band, Blake Saunders, and, and sort of how he saw himself. Yep. So I felt like that was a good reflection of that character and, and the sort of band name that he would choose as the leader. Much, much later, when I was done with the story, I discovered in reading 
an obituary for Peter Banks, who had been the founding guitar player in the band Yes, that after he left Yes, which he did fairly early on in their story, after their second album, uh, I knew he'd been in, in several other bands along the way, but there was another progressive rock band that he had co-founded that had been in existence for a year or two in the, in the early 70s, called Empire. Oh, no. <laughs> wow. <laughs> huh. And it kind of blew my mind because I had never heard of them. I had no idea that anyone in Yes had ever been associated with that name Empire. But there it was. It was karma. It was the greater universe at work. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Well, more on Blake. Blake is 46. At the time of the book, he is divorced from a woman who is, at the time of the story, again, she's in rehab for the fourth time, I think. They have two children, teenagers, Mal and Jane. Mal is the new lead singer of Empire, replacing one of the founding members, a guy named Sparks. The situation with Sparks is interesting. He left the band after he and Blake got into a physical altercation at the Grammys. So the mystery surrounding that fight, what really happened, becomes a sort of subplot. This is pre-Oscars Will Smith slap. Were you, <laughs> were you inspired by any actual events of that nature, or were you just having a bit of fun here? I was having a bit of fun. That, again, just sprung up from my imagination whole cloth. But it certainly, it, it reflects a trend that I think everyone has observed just in, in the media in the last 30 years, that the substance a lot of times isn't as significant in terms of the attention that you can attract as the sizzle. And people love gossip, and I feel like social media has amplified that, magnified that. Certainly. And I'll just add as a footnote, as we were talking, I, I remembered I did give a little nod in describing that scene to one of the inspirations, which was the moment when Taylor Swift was getting a video award and Kanye West came up on stage and hijacked the whole yes. presentation. Kanye appears in the, in the Grammy fight scene. Yes, he does. He does. And that's not by accident. <laughs> Best female video goes to Taylor Swift. Thank you so much. I always dreamed about what it would be like to maybe win one of these someday, but I never actually thought that it would happen. Uh, I sing country music, so thank you so much for giving me a chance to win a VMA award. I... Yo, Taylor. I'm really happy for you. I'm let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. Let's talk about the father-son dynamic in the story. Since we're talking about Empire and Blake Saunders and Mal, his son, is now the lead singer, they have an interesting dynamic. I already knew. Tim Green's situation from Believe in Me, raised by a single dad with whom he has a good relationship. He has an absentee mom. But talk about the relationship of Mal and his father, Blake. I think you, you actually set it up perfectly because 
In the first story, Tim and his father have a close relationship. It has some of those natural parent-child sure. tensions that are always there and, and maybe most often there between same gender parent and child. But in general, they have a close loving relationship. And so looking at another family, you want to look at a different dynamic, explore that. I think especially in a situation where you're looking at one of those two people essentially working for the other, being the other one's boss, those dynamics have huge potential to create drama and and, uh, conflict. And I want to say also, Mal was a character who I knew how he figured in the plot, and I knew sort of the basic outline of the character. But once I started writing him, he was so much fun because he is just the 18-year-old male id completely unleashed. (laughs) He's a saucy somebody. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's he's somebody I think... I forget if it's Sparks or somebody else, but someone in the story, I think, says that he has no filters. Yeah. Whatever he says is what he thought in his head about a half a second before that. (laughs) What do you see as the source of the conflict between Blake and Mal? They have different visions for what the band should be and could be. And Prague is at the heart of that. Yeah, it is. I think. In that genre, there's always been a tension between the camp that wants the music to be completely free and about artistic expression and to go wherever the writer and the players want it to go, and the camp that says, yes, but we need to be a financially viable enterprise, and we need to find a way to build enough of an audience for what we're doing that we can survive as a band. Yeah. And that's always there, and it kind of comes to life in the things that these two figures are uh, saying to each other and and arguing over. And again, when you layer the father-son dynamic on top of that, and the son is this young man who is, is all id and just goes wherever his latest instinct says to go, And you have him up against someone who's very controlling and thinks of this band as as his baby and and kind of the personification of his whole personality and ego. He takes everything that has to do with the band very personally. Then, you know, that that conflict is going to be explosive and fraught and, and create a lot of drama. The bulk of the novel is set in L.A., Malibu, and the surrounding area. And I have to say, your descriptions of the locations are amazing. They're so precise. I know that you live in California, but you don't live in Southern California. So I just wonder what your history with that region is. In my earlier life, when I I worked for the Lieutenant Governor of California from 89 to 95, I would go down to the L.A. area a few times a year usually to staff him in his responsibility as a member of the University of California Board of Regents and the California State University Board of Trustees. And so I got to know the LA area a little bit. But then when I wanted to uh, really explore some specific locations, as you say, and try to capture their, their essence, 
I went back and did a research trip and uh, was fortunate enough with help from staff there to spend a day exploring the Roxy on the Sunset Strip and went to Shutters on the Beach where one of the scenes takes place and just tried to go to each of the, the locations that are described and get as much of the flavor as I could. We did drive up Laurel Canyon Boulevard and uh, drive along Mulholland Drive, uh, went up to the Hollywood sign. Did you hike up there? I didn't. I don't think they allow you to hike up to the sign anymore, But it's and, and I've not hiked up there, but it was so specific about the logistics and how Tim got to the location where the sign is and then hiking up to where it is. It was fantastic. If you are a fan of L.A. and the music scene, you're going to love this book. It's such a love letter, in a way, to that area. As you were saying, Laurel Canyon, Mulholland Drive, Nicholas Drive, and various clubs that I'm going to talk about later. And then you get the history of the Sunset Strip on pages 88 through 89. And then there's some fun facts about the Hollywood sign. Do you remember what you put in there about what Tim tells Mal? Because he's trying to bond with Mal. The first thing he has to do with the band is be present at this publicity shoot that's going to take place at the Hollywood sign. So Tim has to go there. And Tim ticks off a couple of fun facts about the sign. Do you remember what they were? I do. And, and doing the research on the sign was, was a lot of fun. And I, I wasn't able to actually go up to the sign. You have to hike to do that. We drove as close as we could and, yeah. and took some pictures. And then I did the rest of the, the research for that scene. Basically, on Google Maps, the satellite view is pretty great in terms of how close you can get. Uh, and I also looked at a lot of photos from people who had hiked up to the sign that showed the topography of what it looks like up there. But those factoids, yeah, those were a lot of fun. I think especially when I discovered the one about the actress Peggy Entwistle mm-hmm. and realized how easily that would dovetail with a mention of John Entwistle from The Who. <laughs> well, even more than that, that mention of, of Peg Entwistle and the fact that she was this 24-year-old British actress and she just completed her first big film part, but much of her performance was cut from the film. And she then, I think she was let go from her contract and she's not got any money or a backup plan. And, and so she commits suicide. She jumps off the H. This kind of correlates to something that happens later in the novel. But yeah, I mean, the, the Peg Entwistle thing is she's become a legend now. And I actually hadn't heard of it before I started doing some research on the Hollywood sign. It was just a, a, a fascinating factoid that I came across. And it's always fun to weave that kind of thing into the story if it makes sense and, yep. and adds to the texture of the story. Hey, listeners, if you're enjoying the episode so far, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and comment on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or your podcast platform of choice. Help this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels continue to build momentum. The way to do that, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to subscribe, like, and rate the show. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you'll get yourself some good karma. Links to Apple Podcasts and Good Pods in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. All right, we played this next game. The first time you were on the podcast, it's called Only Pick One. 
which I got from Peter McDade's novel, The Weight of Sound. So I've decided to keep it in season three. Are you ready to play a new Never Break the Chain version of Only Pick One? Absolutely. Okay, let's play the game. First category, favorite prog band mentioned in Never Break the Chain. I already know who you're going to say, but what the hell? We've got Yes, we've got Genesis, King Crimson, Pink Floyd, and Big Big Train. It's not as easy of a choice as you might think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I noticed there's a pause there. Oh, my goodness. He's thinking about this. Okay. Uh, Well... If you're talking about bands from the 70s, absolutely, it's yes, no question. Right. If you're talking about bands that are active today, I will just give you a look at the shirt that I'm wearing right now. Big, big train. (laughs) So there you go. Actually, I kind of thought that you might say big, big train. The last time we spoke, you said that until you discovered them around 2008, 2009, you thought you'd lost your interest in Prague. It's true. There, there hadn't been another band that had kind of the, the combination of elements that I felt like was present in the 70s kind of classic era of Yes that I love so much. That was this combination of great harmonies, songs with strong riffs, and songs that combined that kind of riffy, melodic playing with some expansiveness, I mean, longer songs going up to 15, 20 minutes, but that had structure and coherence. And they could also write shorter songs that worked really well, yet still felt like prog. And I think that beyond that, the thing that I find really in common between Yes and Big Big Train at their best, both of those bands, is the emotion of the music. Mm. it's music that can kind of sweep you up. And I think that's especially true of of Yes's best work in the 70s and of Big Big Train's work in the last 10, 15 years. Waiting for trains that never, ever come They've all Category two. This is called I'll Take Top LA Rock Club Circa 1981, please, Alex. So Tim came to LA when he took the job with Empire to write their biography in the hope of stumbling across some clues about where his mother might be. And she was a music club girl. On page 87, you include three clubs he plans to check out. Which will you pick? The Whiskey A Go-Go, the Troubadour, the Roxy, and it's not a rock club, but I'll throw in the Rainbow Bar and Grill too. The Rainbow Bar and Grill deserves to be there. They weren't performing there, but they were all living and eating and talking and partying there. Especially Lemmy. Yeah, yeah. I have to go with the Roxy, both because 
that ends up being a, a key venue in the story and, and a place that gets described in some detail in the story. And also because that's where Bruce Springsteen, one of my musical idols, made his big West Coast first musical impression when he did a, I think it was like a five night run there in about 74 or 75. Hmm. I'm a little ashamed of myself that I can't just rattle that one off, but <laughs> it was sometime in that two year stretch leading up to, to Born to Run and he wasn't really well known at all on the on the West Coast. And he did a run at the Roxy Theater that got people all excited about him and then Born to Run happened and, and the rest is history. Exactly. Okay. Guitars in Blake Saunders Malibu home. He has quite an array of guitars on display in his house. I'm wondering which one is nearest and dearest to your heart. Here they are. Cherry Red Fender Stratocaster. Turquoise Flying V with a glittery finish. Full Body Golden Gibson ES-335. A two-toned black and white monster. A double-necked custom job with 12 strings running up one neck and six on the other. I couldn't tell if that was... A separate guitar, or if that was describing the Gibson, so I threw that in there too. And then burnished auburn Rickenbacker. I love this one. Twelve string, just waiting, as you say, just waiting for Roger McGuinn to happen by and play the opening chords of "Turn, Turn, Turn." And I will go ahead and say my favorite: Gibson Les Paul Sunburst fifty-eight or fifty-nine. Which one you picking? Wow. Well, if I'm a collector, of course I got to have the Sunburst. Yes. But if we're talking sort of musical tastes, what might be nearest and dearest to my heart, I, I might have to go with the Rickenbacker. I, I am a sucker for a good jangly lead riff. And actually, one of the trademarks of the Yes sound for so many years was Chris Squire's Rickenbacker basses. You really got me times two is the next category. Blake and Mal listened to a playlist in the car. That includes two versions of this song because as you write in The Voice of Tim, I'd always had a rule that if you listen to one version of You Really Got Me, you had to listen to both. So which is your favorite, the Kinks original version written by Ray Davies or the Van Halen version? I have gotten into fights with people over this. That is a really tough question. <laughs> that might be the hardest question you've asked me. Really? All right. I mean, the original is a classic. It is, some would argue, the point of origin of heavy metal and hard rock itself. Would Van Halen even exist as a band if not for that song? I don't know. On the other hand, what Eddie Van Halen did with that song was mind-blowing. And I remember distinctly hearing it in 1978, having had, honestly, very little familiarity with the kinks before that call that a hole in my musical education, but I was 15 and a half, so I'm just going to plead teenage ignorance. But I heard the Van Halen version and was completely blown away. And then as I explored more and, and got more interested in rock history and, and uh, learned more about the kinks and discovered the original, uh, it was like, of course, of course they would want to cover this song for all kinds of reasons. but. Both versions, in the context of their times, are kind of mind-blowing. I guess I would probably have to give the edge to the original, 
just because it was their creation and there wouldn't be a Van Halen or a Van Halen version if there hadn't been the original. All right. I'm sensing some reluctance there. And I think that comes from the fact that you heard the Van Halen version first. Yes, absolutely. It's it's linked to memories and emotions from that period of my life in a way that the Kinks version isn't. So, You know, the strange thing is I heard the Kinks version first because I was a throwback. Like you, I had older siblings and I fell in love with the Kinks and they played in Greenville, North Carolina, where I'm from. And I got to go to that concert and it, it just really made an impression on me. That is the version that I prefer. And I didn't hear the Van Halen version until years later. And I remember my reaction was just I was like, I hate this. This is not like the original. <laughs> it's just so overblown. I have to go with the original too. And I apologize if I offended anybody about that Van Halen version. I think that's fair. And again, you know, when I heard the Van Halen version, I was 15 and a half and hard rock and heavy metal was, was where my head was. So. Please don't ever let me be. I only want to be by your side. Please don't ever let me be. I only want to be by your side. Here's the last category in Only Pick One. It is called The Dow of Lester Bangs. Now, on page 113, Tim tells Mel, this is a quote, There's a legend about Lester Bangs, the Rolling Stone guy, the dean of the old school. My dad met him a few times. He supposedly had this rule he'd repeat to anyone who told him they wanted to be a music writer. He'd look them right in the eye and say, like it was the most important advice he could ever give, whatever you do, don't make friends with the rock stars. This, as Tim concedes to Mal, is something he's not good at. And this is advice the character Lester Bangs gives to the young music journalist wannabe in Cameron Crowe's movie, Almost Famous. And I know that you love that movie. So, here are some other bits of wisdom from Lester Bangs. Which one resonates with you the most? Here's the first one. The first mistake of art is to assume that it's serious. Number two. The ultimate sin of any performer is contempt for the audience. Last, every great work of art has two faces, one toward its own time and one toward the future, toward eternity. What grabs you? Hmm. I think I like the first one because I tend to like songs that, that feel like they have a purpose. And yet, if someone gets so far in their head that the song sort of turns into philosophizing and forgets about trying to be entertaining, I find that really frustrating too. Okay. I think there's a balance point in there where you have the entertainment value and the, for lack of a better word, intellectual value in some kind of balance where you're getting some nourishment from, from both of those areas. 
All right, fair enough. Jason, this has been so much fun getting to talk to you again. Where can folks go to find out more about you and buy your books, including Never Break the Chain? You can go to my website. Uh, It's www.jasonwarberg.com. There's links there where you can get background information on each of the books, descriptions, the jacket quotes, things like that, uh, as well as some articles and interviews about each of the books. And also on on my website, kind of the the front page, the hub, is my blog where I, I talk about writing and the things I'm writing about and also just kind of observations on life and what strikes me as, as interesting. Excellent. I'll put links in the show notes. Thanks again, Jason. This was a treat. Great. Thanks so much, Christy. Don't go away. After this short break, we'll be back with Mac B and Action Jackson from the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock podcast to talk prog rock. Stay tuned. This is Mac B. the Wolf. And this is Action Jackson from the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. And you are listening to Rock is Lit with our rock and roll sister, Christy Alexander Hallberg. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. I'm thrilled to welcome back to Rock is Lit my rock and roll brothers, Mac B. the Wolf and Action Jackson from the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock podcast, which is also a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I was a guest on their podcast when my novel Searching for Jimmy Page came out, which is how we met and became fast friends. Later, after I started Rock is Lit, Mac and Jackson joined me on the show in the first season to talk about our favorite movie soundtracks. I'll put links to both of those episodes in the show notes. Check out the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Deezer, Audible, etc., Hey guys, it's great to see you again. Thank you for having us back, my sister in rock and roll. Thank you very much. (laughs) Absolutely. Earlier in the episode, I was talking with Jason Warburg about his rock novel, Never Break the Chain. 
And one of the main characters in the story is this contemporary young musician who is obsessed with old school prog rock. As you know, I love all kinds of music, including some prog rock, but it occurred to me when I was reading that I don't really know a lot about that style of music, and I know that you do. So I'm going to enlist you, or I have enlisted you, to take me to school on this subject. Could you come up with a basic definition or just some characteristics of prog rock? Okay, first of all, I don't know if Jax and I are experts on this. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for pointing that out. I tend to go down these rabbit holes once in a while. I discover something or I just get into a certain era or band or whatever. And I usually drag Jackson with me and he'll have some knowledge already and he'll have maybe some interest. But I just say like, you know, have you heard Peter Gabriel, Steve Hackett, Genesis? And he's like, well, no, not really. And they're like, okay, well, listen to this and we'll listen to Selling England by the Pound. I'm like, well, huh. There's really a lot there, isn't there? There's there's more for us to discover. And that's part of what I like. I think Jackson would agree about rock music is that we don't get a lot of new stuff. They don't make as much. Certainly the record companies don't promote and you know nurture rock bands the way they used to back in the day. But the good news is because in the 70s they did, there's so many bands that you can go back and discover and learn more about them that have these great catalogs. My rule of thumb is if you hear the Mellotron or the Moog, <laughs> you're in the right place. You are definitely you are definitely in the space for prog rock. I was never a huge fan of that genre, only because it's very, very dense. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I didn't like it. It was I hadn't taken the time to get to know it yet. So to me, the hallmarks are less guitar-driven, more uh, melodic, and a lot more orchestration. There's a lot of parts. There's a lot of things going on at the same time that work together. But if you don't take the time to get to know it, it's frustrating because it, it is very dense. Well, here's the thing. I mean, acts like Yes were selling out stadiums in the late 70s you know, in America. Yeah. It's thinking person's music. You could almost call it thinking man's because if you go to like a King Crimson concert, you're not going to find more than eight or 10 females in a 2,000 person crowd for the most part. It's guys like me sitting there scratching the beards, like, oh, yes, he's very on tonight. You know, it's not just casual listening. Like, you could put on some stones, you put on some 12 bar blues, and you can make dinner and you can, you know, work around the house. You can have a cocktail party. But this is like, it's orchestrated, it's got more elements of classical and jazz in it. Like Jackson says, it is less guitar oriented. However, There's always a great guitarist in a great prog band, and they're not just strumming out those big power chords. They're doing more intricate things. The lyrics are usually, not usually, a lot of times they're more fantastical, you know, and they're talking about dragons or wizards or things from beyond time. Also, they can mess with this time signature. It's very rare that it's 4-4, right? It'll be in like 13-8 or something crazy like that. Like, it's not for the average person. You do have to be fairly intelligent to be in a really good prog band. And to me, it's a very British subgenre of music. And I think that goes to their better education system and the way they kind of pound stuff into you. Like most of the best American bands, they weren't great at school. So they did music, you know, in the garage. Whereas, you know, like Pink Floyd all went to Cambridge. Genesis all went to like Charterhouse's like really ritzy private school. Like you, You have to be pretty bright to do this stuff. So it may not connect with everybody, but on the musician side, 
you have to be almost an Olympic athlete at your instrument to be able to, to be in one of those big time prog bands. Yeah. And like you said, the themes are a little bit different too. Like, you know, you listen to the blues, my baby left me, I lost my job. I drink too much. You know, life is hard. Whereas Prague is the fire witch comes back and, you know, Lord of the Rings is hanging around in a lot of this stuff. It's a lot less universal. Okay. Give me a timeline for when Prague first came on the radar and when it became popular. I would say it's late 60s, early 70s. Some people would say that maybe Sgt. Pepper's is a bit of a prog album because they do do some experimental things and they use a lot of different kind of things. But those songs are still pretty short. A lot of these prog songs can be the whole side of a record, you know, 19, 20 minutes or something like that. Pink Floyd doing Echoes. A lot of people say that's the start of it. Or maybe in the court of the Crimson King with King Crimson, which was 68 or 69, wasn't it, Jackson? Yeah. To me, that's always the way I thought of it is, is in the court of the Crimson King was always like kind of patient zero for prog rock. That showed people how you could do this fantastical you know, pieces of music that were more complex and not what people were used to hearing on the radio, not very radio-friendly at all. And I don't even remember hearing any of that on rock radio growing up. Like, I knew of the album, you knew of it, you knew of the band, you knew what the cover looked like, but I had never heard it before because it's just, it's too dense for mainstream acceptance. The chains of prison moons are shattered by the sun I walk the road horizons change the tournament's begun the purple piper plays his tune the choir softly sing three lullabies in an ancient tongue for the court of the crimson You know, a band might have a song that could get on the radio. Like, everyone's heard Roundabout by Yes from the early 70s. But have you heard Side 3 of Tales from Topographic Oceans? No. You don't hear these, like, 19-minute suites. Yeah, it, they kind of took the late 60s, they start to figure it out. And then the early 70s, I say from, like, 70 to 75 or 76 or so, that is the heyday of really British prog experimentation. And, I mean... All those bands, for the most part, still play songs from those days. That's still where they make their money, live. And I get this sense that it sort of fizzled out by the late 70s when punk really gained in popularity. Yeah, I think it just got, it kind of got too big for its own britches, I guess. It just became too big, too bloated. And then you had this generation of kids who they wanted to hear three chords that anybody could play in their garage. That was the big thing. What did we see an interview with? I think it was the Simple Minds. And they were talking about how it's not that they weren't fans of prog rock. They just couldn't play it. I think it was frustrating to a lot of people that while they may have enjoyed it, it was too massive for the average musician to play. Yeah. Well, you said bloated. And I actually wrote that in my notes, that that was a criticism of some of the rock critics at the time, including people like Lester Bangs, calling that style of music really bloated. It's a little intellectual for some people. And you've seen in the last seven or eight years here, how if you're too intellectual, some people really rebel against that. It's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. 
So I'm going to take it as an insult or I, I just don't like it, you know, and just give me something simpler. And the problem is record companies don't know anything about music. So it's like all of a sudden, oh, people like punk. Let's give them all punk for two or three years. Let's just give them as much punk as we can shove down their throats, right? Yeah. And then people come out, okay, well, punk, you know, they couldn't play. We've got people who can play. We'll get into more of a new wave techno thing, which takes some elements of prog and punk and puts them together in a nice four-minute format that would be good on the radio, or we can make a nice video out of it on MTV. Then in the late 80s, it was everyone with long hair and two guitars. You're from LA, you're signed. You know, they overdo that. People rebel against it. Then Nirvana comes along. It's like, those guys suck. We're not going to look like rock stars. We're going to look like homeless people. you know, and, and whine about how life is so horrible. And they're like, Oh, you like that? Let's sign every band from Seattle. Let's get everybody like that and kill all that, you know, other stuff off. So I feel like that was kind of what happened in the early eighties. Who are some other bands that you would immediately think of as prog rock bands? Well, in the seventies, certainly some of the bigger ones were Genesis. Yes. I would say Rush definitely went through some prog albums in the 70s. And then there are bands that I don't know very well, or maybe are not huge in America. People like Gentle Giant and Camel and people like that. You know, in the 80s, yes, the record companies were changing and Genesis kind of became a pop band. And yes, kind of became a pop band. And Pink Floyd went away. You know, Jethro Tull is kind of a proggy band too, you know. And so they started to fall off. And if you're young, you don't want to be looking up to like the 30-year-old rockers. You know, maybe they were big in the 70s, but they're old. I want something new like Marillion. Marillion took off in the 80s. They're huge in England. They're huge in Europe. They're barely known here. Yeah, I was just going to say, I've never heard of them. Oh, yeah. Well, no, they couldn't be any bigger, honestly, among the prog community in England. So prog is still alive and well then. my country lies... Said the uniform to his true love's eyes. It lies with me, cried the queen of maybe. For her merchandise, he traded in his prize. Paper late, cried a voice in the crowd. Steve Hackett is on tour right now in the United States, playing songs from when he was in Genesis 50 years ago. And he's, he's selling out theaters all over the place. And it's amazing. And anybody who wants authentic Genesis should see that because Peter Gabriel recently did a tour, but he only does his solo stuff. He doesn't touch the Genesis stuff. Genesis wrapped up their last tour and it should be their last tour, but they don't do a whole lot from when Pete and Steve were in the band. They mostly focus from, you know, 78 or so on. So it's a place to see authentic prog music. But King Crimson, I think, is still going in some form or another. And they're a whole other entity. Their musicianship is ridiculous. It's off the charts. It's, mm. it's classical meets jazz orchestra, only it's only like seven or eight people. Wow. I was watching this documentary on Rush not that long ago, and there was a segment dedicated to the fan base. The fans for Rush are so loyal, so rabid. 
you had people saying, yes, I've been to a hundred shows. I've been to however many shows. And it occurred to me, is this unique to Rush or is this like a prog rock thing? Is the fan base particularly and unusually dedicated to the bands in this style of music? I think yes. Obviously, every genre has people who are super dedicated to one or you know, uh, certainly some bands. We are going to interview the director of a documentary on King Crimson. Oh, fabulous. Because we got to see the movie kind of before it hit the public. And when you hear the fans talking there, it's like most people don't get it, certainly not at first. But once you get it, you get it in a big way. And I think for our generation, for Americans, Rush is like that. It's very polarizing. It's like people either love them or they don't like them at all. There's really not a lot in the middle. Maybe you say, oh, yeah, I like Tom Sawyer. But for the most part, people are huge Rush fans. And yes, I've seen Rush 12 times. Or <laughs> you know, they're, they're like, whoever that is, I don't get it. And it, I'm kind of that way with King Crimson. We've listened to some of their records. I'm like, okay, I can appreciate this is stellar musicianship. And not everybody can do this. It is very clever. But can I tap my toe to it? You know, can I sing along if I bring a date? Is she going to be like, thank you for bringing me? Or is she going to be like, why the hell did you bring me to this? So it's, it's kind of like you either get it or you don't. And usually the people who get it love it. I think partially because not everybody else gets it. That's part of it. I think for people our age, the people that were really prog fans, you had to have somebody get you into it. Yeah. You had to have either your you know, your parents were cool enough to have it, or you had an older sibling or knew somebody like that. That I don't think there was anybody that was just going to pick up the record and say, I've never heard of this before. I somehow got a copy and fell in love. Somebody had to point you in the right direction. However, however, because these people do consider themselves to be artists and very artistic, some of the album covers are striking. And, you know, we could talk about Roger Dean, the extraordinary artist that he is, who's probably best associated with Yes. The egg. It is the symbol of creation. And since I was your age, it has hatched all my greatest super science ideas. No windows. Pay attention, Dean. Now sit down. You're about to meet my muse. Mommy? Progressive rock. Now, normally, I'd start you off with Asia or something more accessible, but I think you're ready for the primo sh**. Just take a gander at that cover art and try to pretend you're not already inspired. It's like something out of a dream. Painted by our greatest living artist, Mr. Roger Dean. Hey, that's my name! That's no accident, boy. Maybe now you have some sense of the gravity made the destiny of this moment. This is your birthright. But he's also done stuff for Asia. He's done stuff for Uriah Heep. He's done stuff for a lot of different kinds of bands. And so you create this extraordinary artwork that'll catch your eye. And so you'll be like, ooh, what is this? This is called drama. Okay, well, let me see what this is all about. It's not just about the music, I feel like. It's also about 
art and your sensibilities. Yeah. It will always be a niche. And I think it'll be one that'll always be there because the fans who like it love it more than anything. Well, thank you so much, guys. I have a much clearer idea of prog rock now that I have talked with you about it. So what have you got going on at the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast that you want to tell folks about? Well, we're excited about kind of where we've come from this year. I mean, we've done a lot of great album reviews. We've talked to some really cool people. We just got a chance not too long ago to talk to Steve Kilby from the church. That was fun. We both got to go see them on different nights. And looking forward to wrapping up the year, too. I can't believe 2023 is coming to an end. Yeah. Yeah, so we're excited. We actually launched a few months back a new sidecast called First Concert Memories which is fun. It gives us a chance to talk to people about the first time they saw a particular artist or act that changed their life. Uh, and we've had some really best-in-class folks. We had Tom and Zeus from Shout It Out Loudcast talk about the first time they saw Kiss. Saw author Greg Renoff talk about seeing Van Halen on the 1984 tour. Our buddy Neil from Def Lep Pod talking about seeing Def Leppard. And hint, hint, folks, there might be someone else talking about somebody <laughs> important to them coming on our show here really soon, you know? So, yeah, it's been great. It's been fantastic to see the show grow. We're just going to keep going. The hint, hint is I'm going to come on and talk about Page and Plant in 1998. Seeing them at Virginia Beach was amazing. And you have to stay tuned for that because that'll be, that'll be a great convo. We're going to have to block some extra time for that, I believe. (laughs) I've got a lot to say. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, guys. Catch the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Good Pods, Apple, Spotify, etc. Thank you so much for having us. Wyatt, the raucous lit mascot, and I hope you enjoyed this episode featuring Jason Warburg and his novel Never Break the Chain, with special guests Mac B and Action Jackson from the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. We'd sure appreciate it if you leave a comment and a five-star rating on your podcast platform of choice. While you're at it, become an official lit listener by subscribing to the podcast. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes of Rock is Lit. Until next time... Keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From airship the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. 
I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.